So we're carrying on this teaching series uh, that we're doing, The Story of God. Uh, and over the last few months, we've been exploring the, the big story of the Bible, what we often call the kind of the, the meta-narrative or the, the story of stories. And, and in doing this series, not only are we attempting to retell uh, that story, uh, a story that starts in a garden, Eden, uh, in Genesis chapter 1, uh, and a story that ends in a garden city, a restored heaven and earth, uh, in Revelation 21. Not only are we attempting to retell that story, but we're, we're also trying to lay down some foundations that um, really what it means for us to be a people here in this city who embody that, that story. That actually, you know, when we wake up each day, we wake up in the middle of something that's going on. That God is at work and he's been writing this story for, for generations and generations. And so when we wake up tomorrow, we wake up in the middle of God's story. We wake up in the middle of what God is doing. The source of this story, obviously, is the Bible. And um, to help us kind of grab hold of this story, we've broken it down into four parts or four acts like a play. So act one, creation. Act two, fall. Act three, redemption. And act four, restoration or the renewal of all things. And so we, we, we looked at act one, creation, and saw where the story begins. And then act two, fall, where crisis and pain and the brokenness of sin enters into the story where those created in God's image rebel against God and, um, and God's story enters into this catastrophe, this, this, it, you know, this, this pain enters into the story. And then the last time we were together, we started Act 3, Redemption. And, and, and we see, narratively speaking, this Act 3 really covers the vast part of the Bible. Most of your Bible is the redemptive story of God. And as we started to explore this, we saw that God has his plan. And his plan to rewrite the story isn't to just, you know, turn towards things, screw it all up in a ball, throw it away, and start again. That isn't how he's going to deal with the problem in his story. Instead, he chooses an individual. He chooses Abraham. And uh, who will become a family, Israel, who he promises to bless so that they will become a blessing to all the families of the earth. And as we saw last time, God was really good at keeping his end of the deal. Yeah? But actually this family that he invested in weren't as great. They were inconsistent. They fell short of their identity and their calling. And so they never fully become the blessing that God intended them to be. And we see the story of Israel takes loads of twists and turns. <laughs> There's lots of things that go on, and lots of pain and lots of mistakes and lots of destructive behaviour takes place. And at one point in their history, the Israelites complain that they don't have a king like all the other nations of the earth. And so God somewhat reluctantly gives them an earthly king. The first one was a guy called Saul. 
And although he had the stature of a king, you know, he was, uh, he, he knew how to fight in a battle, he, he, he knew how to do all of those sorts of things, he was actually a man who had zero character. He had no character whatsoever. He was dishonest, and he had pride, and he lacked integrity. And as a result, God speaks through a prophet called Samuel. And he says, God is going to raise up a new king for Israel. And that king is going to be David, King David. And King David's reign is considered to be really the most prosperous for Israel in its history, where he unites the 12 tribes of Israel as a nation, and they live in this season of shalom. They live in this season of peace and prosperity. And so David has this idea. He says, I'm going to build a temple for God. I'm going to build a temple for God. But God says, you know what? Thanks very much, David, but I've got different ideas. I've got different plans. And um, in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a promise to David. And he says that his royal line, his, his, his children, uh, there's going to be someone who comes who will, who will build a temple on the earth and set up an eternal kingdom. Now some would say he was talking about David's, uh, David's son, Solomon. But as you read chapter 7 of 2 Samuel, there's a clear undertone that God is talking about something far greater. Something far greater to come. One that will not only extend David's line, but also one that will fulfill God's promise to Abraham. To bring his blessing to the nations of the earth. And so in this moment, in 2 Samuel 7, we see this pointing towards this climactic moment to come in the redemptive work of God. As he rewrites all that's been wronged. And clearly... You know, from our vantage point, from the place that we are in God's story, we see this moment as a sign that points us towards Jesus himself. And how this promise that was made to Abraham and then to David was being fully realised in the person of Jesus. And, and how in the big story that God is writing, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And that's exactly what we've been saying, isn't it, over the last number of weeks. That the story of the Bible is a library of writings that are both divine, God-inspired, but have human interaction, that together tell a unified story that leads us to Jesus. It leads us to Him. And so if you've got a Bible, we're going to turn to... Mark chapter 1, and we're going to read quite a large chunk of Mark chapter 1, so I've asked my long-suffering wife <laughs> to come and read, read that for us. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. 
And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to see him. Confessing their sins, they were baptised by him in the River Jordan. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptise you with water, but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for forty days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals and angels and attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther, he saw son, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat, preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men, and they followed him. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. Just then, a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an impure spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The impure spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were so amazed, they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He even gives orders to move your spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they immediately told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her and she began to wait on them. That evening, after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all who were ill and demon-possessed. The whole town gathered at the door, and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak, because they knew who he was. Thank you much, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> if, we were, if we were angry, then we'd say, That's, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks for eating And um, we see, um, you know, that Mark's Gospel, if you're allowed to have a favourite Gospel, then I would say Mark's Gospel is one of my favourites. Um, 
The reason being is because he cuts out all the waffles, doesn't he? <laughs> you know, he doesn't go mess around with genealogies or, you know, babies being born somewhere in a manger or anything like that. He doesn't do any of that stuff. Uh, he just says, you know, Jesus is here and this is the gospel of Jesus. Bam, bam, bam. Uh, you know, Mark loves the words like immediately, at once, as soon as. Uh, it's like this is happening, and it's really happening now, and Mark isn't wasting any time. He gets, he gets straight to the point. And, and he opens his gospel with this sentence, and it kind of hangs over the whole of Mark's gospel. He says, In the beginning of the, the, he says, the beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. He kind of says it as it is, that this is who Jesus is, and this is what this book is about. And it's interesting that Mark uses that word, the beginning. Yet he kind of borrows this language, doesn't he, from the beginning of God's story, Genesis chapter 1, where it says, in the beginning, God creates the heavens and the earth. And in, in many ways, Mark spends a lot of time borrowing language to make a point. That, that actually this is part of the ongoing redemptive story of God. This is a new beginning happening right now, right here, in this person called Jesus. That, that right now Jesus is a new beginning for all creation, all humanity. It's about to take place. Now it's important to realise from the answer that Jesus doesn't just show up. He doesn't just show up in the middle of God's story and says... Here I am, guys. I'm here to save you. That wasn't the, 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 the point that Jesus was making. Jesus uh, actually does way more than that. As he enters into the story, as he fulfills the redemptive purposes of God. But as I've said before, Jesus arrives to fulfill what was promised. He fulfills the promise. He's a culmination. He's a climax to the, the fulfilment of Israel's story. So we have to see Jesus in the context of the story of Israel. But up to this point, you know, um, you know the, the story has continued. Up to this point, God has been out working his plan. And then Jesus comes along. Jesus arrives, and he's the one there to fulfill it. And you know, we can kind of look at Jesus and get him, but we have to, to fully get who Jesus is. We, we have to see him in the context of that story. The very opening of this first chapter is steeped in Israel's history. It's steeped in the story of Israel. He starts by quoting the Old Testament. He quotes the prophet Isaiah. And he says, as it was written in Isaiah the prophet, and in doing this, he's kind of awakening something in the people. He's awakening them. You know, a, a sermon in our church wouldn't be a sermon unless it had a Star Wars reference. You know, but I remember a few years ago, after the dark times where there was no Star Wars, suddenly a new movie was coming out, The Force Awakens. <laughs> the Force Awakens. It was dreadful, by the way. But, um, but you know, I remember in that moment, you know, the 12-year-old boy in me, came alive. Something was reborn. I, I remember the trailer where Han Solo and Chewbacca appear for the first time. And he's like, Chewie, we're home. Um, you know, and something awakened in me. That's what's going on in this moment. Something is being awakened. Where, where he talks about the prophet who had a message 
a message that someone was going to come ahead of the Messiah. You see, in the Old Testament, there was this prediction that said, before the Messiah comes, before the Saviour of the world comes, before the kingdom breaks in and is established on earth, before God uh, would redemptively act on behalf of humanity, before any of that takes place, there would be one who comes to prepare the way, to prepare the way to receive the Messiah. This person would come as a herald, uh, a voice calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, prepare the way for Jesus. And it's at this point Mark introduces us to John the Baptist. And, and, and John is this kind of strange character who, who um, wears camel hair and eats locusts. I don't know what picture you have of a person who wears camel hair and eats locusts. And he lives in the wilderness. Who else found themselves in the wilderness? The Israelites. The Israelites found themselves in the wilderness. And in many ways, the wilderness is Israel's place of new beginning, isn't it? It's the place where they found themselves free from Pharaoh. They were free from slavery, free from bondage. God, God breaks the power of slavery in the wilderness. And so as we read Mark, we could just think, that's nice, John was in the wilderness. And, and didn't have got it, and that could be right. But when we read it in the context of this story that we've been exploring over the last couple of weeks, we're meant to be like, oh wait... He's in the wilderness. Isn't that like those other guys who were in the wilderness? And we start to see what's happening here, that, that, that this story is starting again. Israel's story is starting over. The other picture that we see uh, is John baptising in the river, in a river called the River Jordan. And he's preaching to people for the repentance of forgiveness. And, and yet, a thousand years earlier, Israel were crossing that very same river and entering into the promised land. Entering into the promised land in order to become all that God had made them to be. And it's here that John, in the wilderness, is returning to that very place, the Jordan River, and, and, and signaling to another new beginning. And so we see the story of God is restarting. It's being retold. There in the wilderness, there in the Jordan, there in the crossing over. The age-old story is being awakened in people's hearts. And then finally, after all of this, Jesus shows up. And it does feel like a little bit of an anticlimax at this moment. Now, he, he goes to John and he asks John to baptise him. Now, why is this important? Why is Jesus, Jesus being baptised in the Jordan so important? You know, Jesus, you know, when we think about our understanding of baptism, does Jesus need to be baptised? He has no sin. He's spotless. He's blameless. But you see, Jesus getting baptized is him identifying himself with us as people. It's him identifying with the nation of Israel. Jesus' Jesus's life means something. 
And his life is to become something. His life is to be a channel of God's salvation to the nations. And this was God's purpose. This was God's plan the whole time. When we look over the fact that God chose Abraham, and we see, we see that fulfilment happening in Jesus, then, then one question we might have is, like, why did God wait so long? You know, when did Jesus show up in Genesis chapter 4? Or Genesis chapter 12? You know, why Abraham and not Jesus? Why did Jesus not show up when King David died? You know, because Solomon kind of went crazy, didn't he? He kind of did a few messed up things. Why did Jesus show, didn't show up in, in those times and places? Why, why did God wait so long and have so much patience with Israel? But you see, Israel was always God's plan. God's intention to rescue and save the world was always through Israel. That was always the plan. And from our perspective, it kind of seems, seems like the long way around. And in many ways it was. Because God, God's intention, God's desire to rewrite the story was to rewrite it through human involvement. To have humans involved. And the more we understand the big story of God, the more we see what God had in mind, that his intention is that humanity would partner with him in this renewal of all things, in the renewal of the world. And so as we talk about, as we talked about last time, you know, God said to Abraham, be my representative. Show the world what I'm like. And you and I together will bring redemption to this story. You and I together will reverse the pain. God always wants us, as humanity, involved in his rescue mission. That's what Jesus puts on flesh. Salvation doesn't just fall out of the sky. God wants us to partner with him. God wants to partner with humanity. And this is why Jesus was human. This is why Jesus is standing in the Jordan River, identifying not just with Israel, but with the whole of humanity. He's stepping into Israel's story and he's saying, I'm here to fulfill something. I'm here to do something. The New Testament scholar, N.T. Wright, he, he says it like this. He says, Jesus believed that the Creator God had purpose from the beginning to address and deal with the problems within his creation through Israel. Israel was not to be an example of a nation under God. Israel was to be the means through which the world would be saved and that this would be accomplished through Israel's, Israel's history, reaching a great moment of climax in which Israel herself would be saved from her enemies and through which the Creator God, the Covenant God, would at last bring his love and justice and his mercy and truth to bear upon the whole world, bringing renewal and healing to all creation. This healing of all creation is what Jesus is doing. This is what Jesus is doing when he steps into the River Jordan. And this is what he has started. And this is reinforced here, and this is where I want to focus on this morning. It says, in verse 14 of chapter 1, it says, After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, 
The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus is like everything you've been waiting for. Everything the prophets have talked about. That moment has now arrived. That, that eternal kingdom promised to David is breaking in. The rule and reign of God is breaking in. God's promise to bring healing to the nations has finally arrived. And it's arrived in me. Not me, Jesus. It's arrived in Jesus. Israel's story is being fulfilled in what Jesus is saying. It's being fulfilled in him. And the means of access, the way to step into this new reality, uh, this new story, is to repent and believe the good news. To repent and believe the good news. Good news in the Bible is often translated gospel. It's where we get the word gospel from. And the Greek word uh, for gospel is euangelion. And it actually is a word that's borrowed from the culture that Jesus lived in. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, to just think about the context a little bit about this word. Imagine you were an officer in the Roman army, and you were sent to go and conquer another nation or another city. Uh, once you had achieved that, the announcement or message of that victory in battle would come back to Rome. And guess what word they would use? You in heaven. Good news. Good news. We've won. Our enemies defeated. Victory is ours. Good news, people. Rome has conquered. And so Jesus uses that exact same word to talk about the good news and the victory he brings. And Jesus wants to make it clear. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it means when the kingdom of God comes. And we see this kind of language, don't we? In Isaiah 51, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. Now Isaiah is in Hebrew, I know, um, but it's exactly the same word in the Greek. You and Gideon. Jesus is like, I've got an announcement for you, and it's good news. The king's coming. It's good news. Victory is at hand. And from this point, you know, the reason why got Terry to read that whole section of Mark, is because we begin to see what life is like, what the story needs to look like when the king and his kingdom arise. Demons are fleeing, bodies are healed, and the effects of the curse in the garden is being reversed. 1 John 3 says the reason the Son of God appears is to destroy the works of the devil. Now, one dictionary definition of the word kingdom is the rule or, or reign of a king and, and what he has over his subjects. The Greek word for kingdom here is basileia, which means exactly that, the king's right to rule. And so as Jesus makes this connection of the kingdom, he's sending out a clear message. God's rule, God's reign is here. God is taking back that which was lost. That, that dominion that was given over, that dominion that was forfeited in the garden, he is taking back. And the very essence of the gospel, the good news of this message, is that the kingdom is breaking into the darkness, breaking into this dark age. And so how do we respond? How do we respond to this kingdom message? 
How do we respond to this climactic moment of redemption in God's story? Well, verse 15 gives us a clue. The time has come, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe. I know when we heard hear that word repent, and we touched on this a few weeks ago, it, it's kind of got baggy, doesn't it? That word repent. Now, we can't help but associate it with like an angry American, you know, wagging their finger, finger at you. And, and often, what we've done is we've reduced that word, repent, to being miserably sorry. Being sorry for our sin. Being sorry for the wrong things we do. But actually, that's just a small part of what repentance means. The word repent comes from the Greek. You get lots of lessons in Greek today. Um, but it comes from the Greek. It's this word, metanoia. Uh, which actually is a verb. It's made up of two words. Meta, which means after or change. And noia, which means mind or to think. Meaning that to repent means to literally have an afterthought or a change of mind. That our response to Jesus' message of the kingdom is to reconsider. But when Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, the invitation to us is to stop to change our mind, to move in a different direction. To repent, in essence, is to turn around. You know, it's like you were going in this direction, you stop, you turn around, and you go in that direction. That's what repentance means. Repentance is far more than just being sorry. Then Jesus says this, he says, he says, believe. He says, believe. And again, we can often reduce belief to like some sort of mental ascent, can't we? Like, oh, I believe that, you know, I have to go to work tomorrow. Or, I believe that, you know, Jesus existed historically in history. But believe is far more than that. And the implications of what Jesus is saying is far more than that. He says, good news, um, the kingdom of God is breaking in, the rule and reign of God is here, you no longer have to live the way you're living. You can turn around. You can be free from sin and brokenness. Stop what you're doing. Turn around. Reconsider. And actually, Jesus said, believe me. But you can say, trust me. Trust me. Believe me. Trust in what I'm saying. Trust what I am saying is better for you. Repent and believe. Just over, just over 30 years after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, uh, there was a, a Jewish historian by the name of Josephus who wrote a biography, um, and he was a leader in the Jewish community. But he, he writes his biography about this, this rebel Jewish leader who was beginning to plot a rebellion to kill Josephus. And uh, Josephus manages to corner this guy uh, and he says this, he says, I told him that I was not ignorant to his plot, which he had conceived against me. So this guy was plotting to kill Josephus. And I said, I would nevertheless condone his actions if he would show repentance and prove his loyalty to me. So notice Josephus' words here. He said, I wish that he would show repentance and prove his loyalty to me. These words could just as easily be that he would repent and believe in me. Exactly the same words that Jesus uses in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15. 
Now, when Josephus was using those words to try and convince that rebel leader to not do what he was doing, he wasn't saying, give up sinning and have a nice religious experience. He wasn't saying that to him. He was saying to him, I want you to give up your agenda, which is to try and kill me. It's probably a good thing to ask. But I want you to give up your agenda, and I want you to put your trust in me. I want you to put your trust in me. Let's see why I put it this way. When Jesus told people to repent, he did not mean have some, some kind of sad religious experience. He meant you're going the wrong way. You're going to have to turn around because God is doing a new thing. If you're going to be part of that new thing, you're going to have to give up the way you have been going. You see, Jesus arrives in the story not as a surprise guest, not as some last-minute trick of God's sleeve, but as the true fulfilment to the redemptive story in human history. And he steps into the story and he makes it really clear to his first hearers and to us the good news has come. The king has arrived. The ultimate price is about to be paid. Meaning we can step into the redemptive purposes of God. First worked out through the nation of Israel, but then extended to the nations of the earth. And this good news, you know, it demands something of us. It requires something of us. It, it causes us to respond. To respond, we have to repent and believe. And as this story reboots, as redemption and restoration and renewal begins to take place, we're called to give up our agenda, give up control, and trust Him. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And it's and it's that that and that's why we need to have this full grasp of the whole story. Not a half story, but a whole story. Not a story of sin management, you know, where we pray a prayer and then get to go to a very Greek version of heaven. But actually the whole story. A, a whole story that's much bigger than any of us could ever have imagined. <coughs> Eugene Peterson says it like this. He says, the story of Jesus does not begin with Jesus. God has been at work for a long time. Salvation, which is the main business of Jesus, is an old business. Jesus is the coming together in final form of energies and movements that have been set in motion before the foundations of the world. You see, as we've been exploring God's story, we realise Jesus is everything in this story. The true fulfilment of everything that has gone before the one set to reverse the pain of brokenness that has entered into God's story. And he calls you and I, and he calls us all to respond to him, to repent and believe. To repent and believe. So why don't we, why don't we stand?